Welcome to the Oil & Gas Elevate podcast. Each week, Sean McCoy and Eric Johnson share real-world case studies of businesses in oil and gas that are successfully navigating the complex environmental, social, and governance landscape. These are the stories that are driving the energy evolution. Here's a demonstration of some mental stimulation. We a nation making change. Let me frame the illustration. It's time for us to elevate your mind to a higher place. Oh, in the power here to innovate. Innovate. Elevate your mind to a higher place. Oh, in the power here to innovate. Welcome to another episode of the Oil and Gas Elevate Podcast. I'm your host, Sean McCoy. And as always, I'm joined by my friend and co-host, Eric Johnson. Good to see you, buddy. Good to see you. How are you doing? As always, I am living the dream. Thanks. Excellent. So as, as we're getting into the talking point segment, but before we do, we're really, really excited about the case study that's coming up in our insight segment. So our case study is going to be with Gunner Energy Services and their president, Clinton Moss, and talking about their abandoned well project in the unlikely but beautiful backdrop, as we heard, Eric, of Huntington Beach, California. So with that, we're also going to add insight from, from, for that perspective from Jamie Spearing of Veril Energy, Veril, sorry, Veril International Energy Services. So that's coming up. But before we get to that, our first segment, Talking Points, is where we take a little time out to have a conversation around a topic or, or two and invite a guest on to be a part of it. And so when, I, when we first started this journey, Eric, around uh, Oil & Gas Global Network and this podcast, when we launched, there was this big event on LinkedIn. And one of the things I love about the way that OGGN does things as a group and the way, the way that we approach not just what we're doing, but other people like us that are doing things in the podcasting world, especially around oil and gas, is it's very synergistic. And so Mark had invited multiple podcast hosts that have an existing show out there to come on. You know, sometimes we think in the business world, like, why would you invite somebody who could potentially be your competition? And, right. and, and the beauty about podcasts, as we always talk about, Eric, is that it's kind of a, it's a collective. Like there's no, you can listen to all of them or as many as you want. Right. And so, so the idea is to bring up that. And I love that idea of working with it. I think there's a lot of parallels in what we're doing. It's so one of those people that came through in that event was Jeffrey Can, who's the host of the Digital Oil and Gas podcast. And so, as we do, I saw him on there and I started listening to his podcast. And then him and I, we connected and I started telling him about what we're doing coming up. And he, and he sent to me one of the things that a report that he had co authored called The Digital Transformation from the Boardroom. And I thought it was such an interesting take. Because you know, one of the things we talk about with ESG, we were having that conversation today, that governance, you know, is a really difficult, I think they're all difficult, I think, in their own right. But governance is that one that almost kind of, we kind of forget, right? Heavy on the environment, makes sense, let's go green, social, let's, let's be nice people. And then governance comes along and everybody kind of goes, huh, okay, it's about compensation. And then they leave it, right? Kind of like, <laughs> they don't want to touch any right. more than that. And so, and so with that, that's why I thought it was such a great, and it was a nice way to, I think, to segue into how you manage something like governance in, his, in, that, in that report. So I reached out and said, hey, we'd love to talk to you. But before we talk to Jeffrey, I want to ask you, Eric, you got a lot of experience in the boardroom. You've been around with that. And so when it comes to things like data and information, whether it's digital or not, kind of what it, give us an idea of what that boardroom feel is like in regards to how they govern and they use information, digital or otherwise. Yeah, so I, I think if you rewind the clock 20 years, you know, that's a pretty standard format in the way things were done. There were hard copy board books that would have been distributed several days before a board meeting. So, you know, your information had to be put together, packaged, bound, copies made. Typically FedEx is sent out, that kind of thing. And everybody would come to the boardroom with their board books and have, you know, have conversations around what was in there. But when you think about data or information that's going into the boardroom, you know, it's a question of what data and information are they getting in? What are they getting? When do they get it? 
and how do they get it? And I think just in recent years, we've seen significant transformation on that front, just like we're seeing a significant digital transformation in the oil itself and remote ops and all those types of things. I think you're seeing it start to work its way up into the boardroom as well. Most boardrooms I walk into now are using some digital portal. And so, you know, I'm one of those guys that I still want a hard copy. Like I walk in, I ask for the hard copy because I'm going to take notes all over the thing. But most of the directors, even those that would be of an older generation, which most are, are sitting around the boardroom table, either with an iPad or their laptop, and they've got, you know, this electronic board book that's been delivered to them. And it, it does it does a handful of things, which I think are great. One, it allows the management team to get their information and data to the board as late in the process as possible. So that data is as good as it can be. And then it also allows, you know, board members who may be traveling in other ways to access that data in a way that they can continue to read it. And so that when they come into the boardroom, they're prepared, they're ready to deliberate and they're ready to do things. So we really are seeing a transformation on the digital front as well at the board level. Well, so I'd love to, so let's get Jeffrey into the conversation, but before we do, I want to tell you a little bit about Jeffrey. So he's an author, educator, podcaster, as I mentioned, and an inspiring professional speaker. His passion is the oil and gas industry, and it's imperative to exploit digital innovations as it transitions to new fuels, a bit like this evolution we've been talking about. He has worked around the world, including Canada, the US, Korea, Japan, Hong Kong, China, Australia, and the Caribbean over his 35-year career for some of the most iconic oil and gas brands out there. He teaches a one-day seminar of digital oil and gas, produces a weekly article and podcast on digital issues in energy, and has published his first book, which just arrived at your house. Looking forward to it. Yeah, Bits, Bites, and Barrels, The Digital Transformation of Oil and Gas. And so Jeffrey has a commerce degree from McGill University and an MBA from the Ivy School of Business. He lives on the sunshine, beautiful sunshine coast of British Columbia. So we could not convince him to come down to Houston, which is okay. Don't know why that didn't work. Yeah, right. And, this, and he enjoys mountain biking and sea kayaking. So, you know, he loves, the, he loves nature and we love that. So with all that said, Jeffrey, thanks so much for coming on and taking some time to talk to us. I'm delighted to be here and thank you very much for the invitation. Much appreciated. You're welcome. So, you know, in relative to that, you know, that co-authored report and stuff like that, was that, I was trying to remember exactly how, what was the catalyst for that? Was that something that the authors came up with? I know you were part of a consortium that came up with that. So maybe help give us a little background on what that, was that something that the authors came up and said we wanted to do or were you tasked with it? as far as that goes? Well, in Canada, there is a institution called the Institute of Corporate Directors, and its mission is to create a high-quality corporate directorship. And that's done by holding series of events and education sessions and the like. The Institute publishes regularly on topics, evolving topics that are important to directors at, at the board level. And one of the hot topics facing all of industry is this wave of digital transformation that's hitting all sectors at the same time. And this, of course, raised immediately to question, what is the role of the board in helping management oversee any digital transformation efforts that they might have underway? Meanwhile, so that's one track. Meanwhile, when I was putting my book together, I devoted 20% of the content in the book to this question of what is the board's responsibility? Because in my view, the board plays a paramount role in making sure that companies in the industry are able to be sustained through these major waves of industrial change that hit us. And I was not confident based on what I was seeing as I was putting my book together, that boards in oil and gas, and that's upstream, midstream, downstream services, regulators, stakeholders of all kinds, were not paying as close attention to this wave of change as they needed to. 
So with that, the the Institute's authorship team contacted me for perspectives related to oil and gas. And uh, that's how I ended up being involved with putting this publication together. So when we think about board roles, I put in two big buckets, right? You get kind of the strategy setting role. Where's the vision? Where are we headed from a strategy perspective? And then there's risk oversight. And, and I think you're right. The digital transformation is hitting all industries. It's hitting oil and gas in very specific ways, but it hits both those buckets. It's a very different way of doing business, but it also introduces a very large new set of risks to how we execute. And so when you think about how boards are maybe struggling or trying to catch up and, and understand what their role is in this new digital transformation, what are the big hurdles you're seeing? Where are they struggling to kind of hit the home run? Well, in many cases, it starts really with what is the clarity of statement or clarity of direction around what the board's role is vis-a-vis digital. Is this something you just say, well, this is a part of the IT function, and then it just sort of disappears into the landscape of issues that bubble up to the board's level during a quarterly? Or is digital something much more profound, in which case it gets directly at the heart of the, the role of the board? And many boards do not have the right composition to cope with this. The skill set of individuals who you typically turn to to serve as board members will be those with depth of experience in, in 30, 40, 50 years. Well, many of those individuals, no disrespect, I am one of them, those individuals predate the internet era, let alone digital. And so many cases, boards don't have the composition of skill set or awareness or experience to be able to even think about what the specific challenges are in it as we transition to digital. So it starts right there with, with clarity of, of board composition. And then, of course, you then descend down from that to your point, Eric, where you'd said boards have oversight roles. Boards are frequently structured so that there's a compensation review board, there's an audit review, there may be special teams struck to deal with specific issues. What is the right governance structure inside the board to supervise the transition to digital? Good question. Where's the practicum that boards can turn to to say, oh, well, this is this is good practice. We should have one of those. Good question. What kind of skill set do you need on your board to be able to steward that? Good question. Where are you going to find that skill set? And if it's in oil and gas, it's, are you going to turn to your peer group in, say, Houston or Calgary or Aberdeen? And hopefully you'll find a, a seasoned oil industry expert who's got depth in digital Mm, perhaps not. You might need to look to banking or telecommunications or Silicon Valley for that skill set. So it starts really right at the question of what is the role of the board? You know, Sean, you and I talked about this the other day. I actually had a conversation with the head lawyer over kind of ESG and governance issues at one of the largest kind of original equipment manufacturers in, in OFS. And what actually came up was this whole discussion kind of getting pushed down from the board level is, hey, do we need an energy transition committee? And my response was, well, I don't know if you do or not, but my first question was, who's going to be on it? Let's assume that you do. Is there anybody in the room that could actually serve in that role? And so as they were thinking about the composition, it's like, okay, well, who would we put in there? And there's so much pressure now around the diversity inclusion issue. They're like, okay, our next director needs to be a female and probably a person of color. And I was like, I would like to add to your list. They probably also need to be from Silicon Valley. So, I mean, you know, exactly what you're talking about, Jeffrey, there's things that need to be done, but the question is, do you have the right people in the room to even execute on what you think needs to happen? Exactly. Yep, quite right. And that expertise and skill set permeates down, down from there. The next question typically boards need to ask is, 
and this is directed to management, and there may be cooperation with management to help develop this, but what is going to be the organization's vision for itself in a digital era? I find it very interesting when you look around the landscape of oil and gas companies, how few, if any, set themselves up or have a very clear statement of intent that they're going to be digitally led as an energy concern. Whereas if you go to many other industries, you'd find banks, for instance, who say, we're going to be digitally led. We're going to be the bank of the next generation. And we're going to be distinguished by how we leverage modern tools to reinvent banking. Where is the oil and gas or energy concern that's taking that position? Very good question. So it starts with, after you've got the right board, are you actually, is that board engaging to create the right conversations internally to achieve the right vision for the future? And these days, with energy transition at play, digitization at play, and all kinds of new companies getting into energy, either generation or production or distribution, the competitive landscape is now going, is very, very soon going to be dramatically different. And energy boards need to be ready for this. So I want to ask a quick kind of backup question, if you will. It, kind of, it may seem simplistic, but we've been using the word digital now for a little bit. And can you help us give us maybe a pragmatic example of a real kind of a transition or an evolution of using digital besides just, well, instead of having the piece of paper on my desk, it's now on the front of an iPad, but it's still just that piece of paper or that hard copy. And so kind of maybe give an example that you've seen information that was typically looked at this way, that when you truly digitize it, including, you know, comprehensive or, you know, some sort of an analysis aspect to it and implementing that you've seen kind of a, an example of a success of transitioning into a true digital use of information. Well, there's, there's lots of examples out there of, of different solutions and technologies that do change the landscape. In energy, I can give you a couple of, of fun ones, which I think are fascinating. You may have heard of IBM Watson, which is a tool by IBM to has an artificial intelligence front end and a cataloging capability underneath it. What if you could take all of your known current engineering content, all emails, all reports, everything you've accumulated over a 40-year time period, imagine all the studies and reports that you would have done for your business over that period of time. You put that into IBM Watson or an artificial intelligence engine. And now your engineers can simply query that database to get the information they need to carry out the work that they've been tasked to do. You suddenly have 40 years of engineering talent now at your fingertips. Every engineer who's ever worked on your your business is now embedded in this one artificial intelligence solution. This changes fundamentally how you think about engineering content, the skill sets you need for engineering work, the problems you can solve with engineering questions that you might not have been able to get at before. Is this fantasy? No, this is reality in Australia. This is how business gets done down there. So well, that's just one, one illustration, but I could give you dozens more about how companies are looking at and rethinking how they're doing business in energy if they apply technologies in creative ways. You, know, you think about one of the things that goes on as companies age and mature, you think about loss of institutional knowledge, and but the ability to take something like that and, and to park it inside, you know, a digital platform that that institutional knowledge carries on, right? Allows you to become more lean, more efficient, much quicker in handling and solving problems. So, you know. Exactly right. It's the same as saying, I'm going to take my 23-year-old engineer who's just out of school, and I'm going to make them as smart as my 45-year-old engineer because they're able to access the content in ways that prior generations of employees could not. That's pretty profound when you start to think about it. And that's just one little example. 
What happens when you carry out that kind of creative reimagining of the business and you push it around socially through your company? Huge implications for this. Yeah, I mean, you, you can, it seems to me like an, an amazing opportunity to really have that legacy information not only available, but then you take away, and I don't know if it's good or bad. I think there's some, a little bit of both of taking away the human aspect of whether or not they remember it or how the it, biases. It, it, and, it does, yeah. Yeah. So Let I me guess. give you another, another real example. Department of Homeland Security in your country is presently running some trials where they take barrels of oil shipments coming from Canada across the border by pipeline and putting those and recording them on a blockchain structure. Now, this has some simple effects. It reduces some paperwork in DHS and it reduces some paperwork on the Canadian shipper side and paperwork on the buyer side. But what it also does is it fundamentally changes how we think about oil instead of it being an anonymous product bought and sold globally to something that is now trackable on a blockchain structure. This changes how you think about enforcement actions globally for oil, right? So the challenges of and the black dark oils that move around the world that are bought, bought, sold, and traded without visibility and transparency, we're at the edge where we're going to be able to change that. That has quite profound implications when you start to pull, pick away at it for traders and oil companies, customers, you get, trans, you get full transparency over where their molecules are coming from. Well, the political impact of that, I think, would be geopolitical aspect of that would be incredible. Oh, completely. Yeah. And again, back to the question, if the board is not aware of how these technologies can change not just the nuts and bolts of business, but these larger scale, rather grand changes that are now possible. Who is? When you think about only gas is going to be critical for decades to come, no matter what we think about energy transition, we just have too many demands and uses for it. But as you sit in a boardroom, if you're a director and you're sitting in a boardroom and you want to be one of the players on a go forward basis, the capital providers have demanded efficiency. They have demanded better use of your cash, better return on capital. They want to see cash flow, right? And so my personal opinion, it's board level imperative that there be a hard, hard push on the digitalization front. How do you find and capture that efficiency so that you're one of the players that continues on? And if you don't have, I go back to really, we're almost doing a full circle back to the original topic we discussed. I think directors need to look around the boardroom and if you don't have the right people in the room that can help see that vision, because it's, it's a different vision. It's a different vision than what we've had historically in many ways. And that's not to say that we're, we haven't used data and that we haven't done those kinds of things. But I think it's, it's accelerated now on such a level that you need to look around the boardroom and make sure you have the right people in the room that understand that strategy, understand that vision, and can be champions for it and communicate it down to the, to the, to the C-suite so they can execute on it. Yeah, I completely agree. Well, and it seems to me like there's the party who's talking about the Watson as a Jeopardy fan. And of course, I know exactly what you're talking about, but the ability to not just have access to the data. So I think in terms of like a takeaway, the digital side isn't just putting it on an iPad or having it in a PDF on your computer that doesn't make it digital and to enhance that ability to really get to the core of that data and then a comprehensive look at it in real time that allows you to put it in a perspective that could help that decision making. Because we like to pick on boards and we like to look at leadership and, and cast blame, but they're, you know, if you're not giving them the proper tools and all the tools possible to really be effective, well, then you get, you know, you have the potential, I should say, to have a result that you have sometimes, which is just, it's incomplete in terms of their ability to govern, which is unfortunate. Yeah. There's, in my mind, there's a distinction between what I typically see in oil and gas, which is buying digital and doing digital as distinct from being digital. 
And being digital means changing culture, behaviors, performance metrics, talent, uh, skill set needs, mindsets, process and practices, deeply embedded ways of working. These need to adjust and adapt so companies can truly be digital, not just buy digital or do digital. So another role of the board has to be challenging management to ask that, that hard question. Are you just buying digital? Are we putting a digital skin on top of a legacy business that's really not going to be able to withstand the the buffeting of competitive forces coming at us? Or are you truly trying to transform the business so that it can engage with this wave of digital change over time? And unfortunately, for most oil and gas companies, the tendency to just want to buy it and be done it overwhelms. And my challenge to, to, to boards everywhere is to ask that deeper question. Are you just putting paint on this or are you really trying to drive a much more fundamental change? I love that distinction. Are you going to be digital or are you just buying digital? Are you just buying digital? Yeah. Anybody can buy digital and oil and gas people love to buy stuff. So this is, <laughs> this is why it's very easy to kind of go, oh, well, we, we bought the latest in blockchain, so we must be digital. Or all my people use Excel. We're, we're already digital. Uh, no, (laughs) I I I can't use Excel. Yeah, no, definitely not like a design anyway. So I can literally feel our sponsors like Hewlett. I think I'm doing a thing for Andy and all our friends over at Hewlett Packard Enterprise right now that are probably going, yes, this is exactly exactly what we're talking about, right? Oh, they just got super excited. Oh, I know. I know. I got excited for them. So this always goes by too quick. Jeffrey, really appreciate your time. Some great insight. We're going to definitely point our listeners to you and what your work on in the show notes. And, and buy the book. And buy the book. Yeah. And read it because it's, it's yeah fascinating subject. So thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Thanks, Jeffrey. Thank you, gentlemen, for the invite. No problem. All right. And with that, everybody, stay tuned for this. We're gonna, well, stay tuned. There's going to be a short break. And then we'll get into the case study with Gunner Energy Services. Thanks. And we'll see you after we return. And let's take a moment to talk about our sponsor, Hewlett Packard Enterprise. Technology alone can't solve business problems, but an ecosystem of partners with the right expertise can. HP is proud to partner with business leaders and exceed their goals together. When it comes to ESG, for example, their knowledge and expertise helps oil and gas leaders not only become a force for good, but also increase their business and market value. ESG is a business driver for HP. Let them show you how it can boost investment, win business, attract talent, and future-proof your products from regulatory risk. Want to find out more about how to make your company an ESG success story? Go to www.hpe.com forward slash engage forward slash IOT or click on the link in the show notes for more information and to download HPE's white paper all about it. Welcome to the case study segment of the podcast. As always, I'm joined here by my co-host Eric Johnson. Today, we are talking with Clinton Moss of Gunner Energy Services around abandoned well intervention specifically their recent job in Huntington Beach, California. Before we get to that, we're going to talk a little bit about about Clinton. So he's a self-confessed serial entrepreneur and inventor, focusing on the development of cutting-edge solutions to improve energy industry processes around recovery and acute response to difficult situations like disasters, both natural and, as we'll learn, man-made. He's also a known subject matter expert in regards to directional drilling, wellbore positioning, and magnetic ranging systems. His 15-year career spans time at Halliburton, Wildwell Control, Marksman Ranging Technologies, and Scientific Drilling. He's currently the president of Gunner Energy Services, which was founded in November of 2019. Clinton, on behalf of Eric and I, thanks so much for taking the time to the show and welcome. Thanks, gents. Thank you very much for having me. Awesome. So this first step 
in understanding the case study that was what we call the change. Can you help us understand the nature of the problem you guys were addressing in Huntington Beach and how you recognized it? Well, ever since I've been in industry, I've been aware that in particular in California, there are issues with abandoned wells, wells that are problematic, need to be abandoned through conventional or atypical means. So I've known that, I've just been aware of it as a feature of that particular oil play since 2005. And basically, I went there looking for those opportunities. So I've been always been aware of it, and I sought out those opportunities then to engage in rectifying some of those problems. Gotcha. So you saw this, you saw this opportunity, and then when you got a chance to dive into it, obviously things don't always go as planned, and this is what we call our, our road section. So can you tell us a few things, one, about one of the issues that you expected to face, and one issue that you didn't expect to face as you got a chance to go and address the well? Sure. So the biggest issue, actually, that, that I didn't anticipate because we don't, I went to California and uh, basically I called on some consultants and various uh, engineering firms that are engaged in, in remediating these wells. And a gentleman there with Miocene Engineering identified this problematic well that he was working on. And then he retained me to, to work with them. So it's Alan uh, White with Miocene. Anyways, typical oil and gas operations 24 hours a day. Okay. I did not anticipate in, in California and it actually turns out it's because of the geographical location, downtown Huntington Beach, that we could only work basically eight, nine hours a day. So, you know, by the time you arrive on location, get geared up, run in hole, you always have to anticipate stopping that process and shutting down for the night. That's a weird thing. Oil and gas typically we operate 24 hours. What I did anticipate was tremendous complexity and difficulty. So it's just, it's a real puzzle, these wells. Every, I like to say every well has a fingerprint. This particular well had some features that make, make it problematic or difficult to address. So I anticipated great complexity. I did not anticipate additional complexity because of time constraints, but I totally understand why we were limited to operating in daylight hours. Yeah. So obviously, like with all problems, you adjust and you, you take those and other ones and you, you overcome them. And so at the end, what was the, so you, you saw the well, you addressed it, you went through all this. What was it? What we, this is what we call our harvest section. So what was created? What was the end result of the efforts that you got there? What did, what did we get? The well has now been properly abandoned. There's a certificate that's been issued by the government of California that says that that well, for all intents and purposes, has been remediated. And now there is no longer any restrictions of the land, the actual physical lot over which the well is found. So the developer, the person, entity that owns that property can now develop in whatever way they say fit. And I think this particular development is going to be a condominium. So people will live there now, whereas before it was just a vacant space. Right. So, so in terms of that, so the fourth path is kind of like, so once they get that document, and this is no small feat to get a document from the state of California that basically signs off. And so, like you said, now the application phase is four stages we can do more with it than just let it sit there abandoned. So tell us a little bit about what that was like for the person that hired, the people that hired you when they got that clean slate, that green light to develop. Was it a joyous moment? When you re-enter the well, so it's actually physically put something back inside of the well where you had lost access. It's literally like a celebration because it's very, very difficult to do. And it's also, you know, undeniable proof that you've achieved what you're meant to achieve, which is to get access back into the well. So you physically put something back inside. So that's a celebration. Then at that point, I go away. I've, I've achieved my goal. Now, what do they have to do? Then they have to meet 
the requirements of the regulatory body, which is the California government, essentially, in this case. And what does that mean? Well, they clean out the well, get the cement spotted deep and do all that. So that was the next process before the certificate was issued or for this compliance, I suppose, record was generated. And I was gone at that time, but I did, thankfully, I was able to participate then in this celebration. Once you gain access again, that is a, you know, a monumental achievement. And so obviously, you know, the big question outside of all that is how does this impact you know, ESG, environment, social, and governance? So in, what, in those areas, what was the biggest impact in those three that this well had? Impacts all three. Starting with the environment, that's an easy one. Obviously, the well has not been sealed. It's possible that it could leak gas or hydrocarbon mix, whatever. I don't know that it was leaking, but certainly it's, you know, that's a possibility. And there's reports of many wells that do. So the environmental cleanup aspect of it is, is obvious. Social, you know, there's a lot of talk about social license and stuff like that. And people say, not in my backyard. And this is a different level of not in my backyard. Literally, when I was on the rig floor, I could see people barbecuing in their condos. I don't think that's reasonable. You know, so obviously you cannot continue or you will not have a social license to operate when you have drilling rigs, literally adjacent someone's home. So it's good to have that dealt with and have that rectified. And ESG, that the government is certainly involved in this process, aren't they? Yeah. So, you know, to their credit, the California government, it's, it's actually, the agency is called CalGEM right now. And sometimes we deal with them directly, other times not. In this case, it was the customer and Miocene Energy, but they are there every step of the way. So it's not like you just send them a report and they, you know, send you back this certificate. They could literally show and do show up to verify on location to make sure that what you claim that you've done, you've done. And in particular, this event of re-entering, that is, once they witness that, that's a big deal for them as well, obviously. So re-entering the well, putting something back inside is the gold standard. So I'm sitting here with my law degree and my accounting degree, and I have this vision of Clinton in downtown Huntington, working from eight to five only with people trying to barbecue around him. Help me as somebody who doesn't really know plugging in abandonment, doesn't know what you've got to do to reaccess the well to get back into it. And so you can actually cement this thing off. Tell in a minute, just, you know, for the guys that don't understand this stuff, tell me what you literally had to do and how hard it was to overcome in that, in that environment. Yeah. So you have an old record from the 1920s, handwritten record that suggests, well, it doesn't suggest it, you know, details that you have a well and a certain technical description of the well and records of when it was drilled, et cetera. It's present. But you don't see any evidence of that on surface anymore. It's just an empty lot, for example. Or sometimes there's a wellhead, but most times not. Because that well has been, they've attempted to abandon it. So they cut all that stuff away and take it away. And it just looks like a grassy field. So imagine then someone tells you, beneath your feet, let's just say right here, we're sitting in a studio. Beneath your feet right now, there's a well. We want you to drill down somehow and intersect the well. And it's as big as a pie plate. Okay, and just do it. Where do you start? Where do you start drilling? Here or over there? Or how does this work? So, you know, what we have to do is drill more or less blindly. And then we lower sensors into the well bore that detect that well, that the problematic well. So we drill a new well bore, lower a sensor, it detects it, and then we make all our decision-making based on that. So that's, that's what you have to do. You, you, you're kind of like, like a flashlight looking around in the dark, but only you're underneath the ground. It's just fascinating to me. And so you've gone through this process. 
we think about this being in the middle of Huntington Beach, and you mentioned this earlier, but you know, one of the things I've been really focused on is is land use, right? You're talking about you have some highly valuable real estate that's been sitting there unused for the longest time. Obviously, Huntington Beach, that's a little bit unique. But if we talk about other places in California, we talk about Texas. I mean, just what are your thoughts on, you know, what is the market, the opportunity to tap in and, and do more of this type of work and kind of carry our weight with respect to kind of the grave side of it, getting getting the well to the finishing? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, every well, most wells, I suppose it's not an exaggeration to say that, that they all will become unproductive at some point. And they need to be remediated. So every well that's drilled, I suppose we could look at permitting and see how many that there are. We know I can see stories of, although I don't track the numbers closely myself, but I mean, you can read anyone will see a story pop up in their news feed about the unfunded liability that's present, you know, and the number of wells and how much money that's going to take to remediate that. I know, for example, in California, you can log onto their website, the government of California's website today an actual filter on a map, and it will show you all the idle wells in California. That's a well, I'm not sure the actual technical description, but something like it's not produced any oil or gas in the last, let's say, 18 months, some time period. And there are, I don't know, 10,000, 15,000 of these, right? So the challenge or the problem is, I don't want to over-exaggerate it or be hyperbolic about it, but there's there's a lot of wells that need to be properly plugged and abandoned, absolutely. And it's increasingly becoming public knowledge. You can, like I said, for example, in California, look it up, look on the map yourself. Right. So in terms of that, around the state of California, you'd mentioned that you had a pretty good relationship, or at least an opportunity to engage with them. There's public information that's out there. Yeah. You know, one of the big stereotypes, especially in our industry, is when you go to places like California, there's like this invisible wall that shows up, and it's kind of like this is a non-oil and gas friendly area. Can you tell us a little, about, a little bit of what it was like to work with the state government and how much of that is founded? And did you feel like there was people on that side of it that understood the depth of that problem and that they're aware about it? And maybe what Oh, yeah. Was? Yeah. Look, these guys and gals with, it used to be called Dogger. It's uh, another acronym. Now it's CalJam. The people at the state of California, I have worked with them directly, but th- on this particular occasion, indirectly, I was not forward-facing to them. But they're fine to work with. They have the... A rigorous criteria that will ensure that the well has been properly abandoned and plugged. And I agree 100% that we should follow rigorous criteria. Remember, this well that we're talking about was plugged, I'm doing air quotes, in 1950. Okay, but the standard at that point in time was not durable. It, it won't last. It, it, so the new standard, I will say with my hand on my heart, is permanent. So by my view, anyways. So they're making sure people comply with that standard as they should. And as you achieve these milestones, I've never experienced any problems in having them give you the documentation and then, you know, et cetera. So very fair to work with. There's an exacting standard as there should be. How, how was it plugged in 1950? Yeah, it's interesting. So in the records, they said cedar pole, okay, cedar pole. And I get, I, I'm told what they would do is go up into these redwood forests in Northern California, literally cut these logs and whittle them down to the proper outside diameter. Let's say it's 10 and a half inches and literally drop it in the well bore. Just, just let it drop like a torpedo going into the well. And then it will, once there's a casing diameter change, it will, it will lodge there. And then it's meant to swell up with wellbore fluids and stay there for the rest of the time. But 
cedar is <laughs> as good as it is as a construction material it will not last infinitely long <laughs> down hole. This is the job of cement. You know, that's what we should have down there. So actually when we were in this old well, cleaning it out, you're looking back at the records from 1950s and it said, you know, at this depth, this is where that pole we expect it to be. The pole is 30 feet long. And we actually would contact that and start drilling it. And then the cedar would make its way up. The column of fluid circulated back around. You could actually smell the cedar in your hand from this pole that was deposited 80 years ago, whatever it was. It's very interesting. So leave it to California to plug it like a bottle of wine, right? Is that what we're saying? <laughs> I'm hearing that, yeah. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. I think this is one of the interesting parts. I think a lot of people think that wells have literally just been abandoned and the whole issue has been ignored. But in fact, you've had some serious technology changes. I don't consider dropping a tree down the whole very impressive technology. But as, as we stand here today, there are a whole bunch of wells that were probably properly done 50 years ago. But we're looking at now going, yeah. no, this doesn't work. Well, the other thing they did is, you know, they dropped the tree, but they would quote, air quotes again now, you guys can't see it, but they would bale cement. So they take a, just a small amount of cement, put it on top of this pole. But once again, it's not, it's not substantial plug, you know. So now you will spot hundreds or thousands of feet of cement. You know, so, so this is a durable and permeable bar barrier as compared to a cap of cement on a light pole or you know, an old utility pole, for example. And so I want to ask you a little bit about the complexity of what you're doing. Like this isn't something, I think it's fair to say that most service companies, especially the big ones, aren't, aren't offering this type of service, not because they can't or won't. It's just there's a viability. You now we're talking about, you know, the scale of drilling efficiency around out in the Permian when you got nothing but, you know, it's the same kind of, you know, it's the same setup basically, especially with, you know, multi-pad and your, your shells and stuff like that. And as you called it, this was such an oddball. It's such a unique process and requires, you know, a certain set of skills as we've heard in certain areas, right? Yeah. So can you tell us a little bit more? And I know, I mean, I know you're a humble guy, but you'd mentioned to me like, you know, patents. Humble? Just, I don't know about that. <laughs> well, <laughs> Not you feel like it, at least At least on my end of it, you just, but in terms of like just, you know, the idea that you had to do some unique things around this well, specifically the patents that you'd mentioned, like it's, yeah, yeah. it takes a certain skill set to be able to do this as well. Okay. A couple things just to compare a factory drilling process to what went on here. I'll throw some numbers out there, but anyone can see it on LinkedIn. You'll see records broken in the Permian Basin. For example, uh, you know, they'll say, Oh, we drilled 10,000 foot in nine hours or, you know, some outrageous amount of footage drilled. Okay. So they're literally drilling these wells in, I don't know, week, two weeks, something like that. Let's call it two weeks. And that's occurring 10, 12,000 foot below the surface and in depth. And then it can be 20,000 foot long total depth. Okay. So just match 20,000 foot, two weeks is kind of what you're dealing with. This well in California, all the work that we did for weeks was from surface to 300 feet below surface. So there is really no comparison to the efficiency of a factory drilling process versus what we're doing here. Why? We're dealing with materials and wellbore architecture originally installed in the 1920s. There were records, but sometimes they're poor records. They're incomplete. And then it's just technically what we're trying to do. So what we're trying to do is drill a new hole and hit a target well, which has a steel casing, steel sheath, and we need to physically penetrate, mill back into milling is what we do. So to reaccess and then enter that drill bit back into the old well bore. Now, not to get a little too complex, but generally we want to attempt to make that aperture in the casing. So to cut that window, to make that space, that slot, 
with a relative angle of between three and five degrees. And if I was going to try to illustrate to that to you gentlemen with my hands, it'd be difficult. It's just a tiny, tiny fraction. So we're trying to, you know, for example, that's just one example. We're trying to have a level of accuracy with the installation of this wellbore architecture, pipes and drill bits and all this stuff, below the surface of the earth that rivals the level of accuracy that you need, for example, to build a building such as this. So you're talking inches, we're talking degrees. If you're one degree out, that could be problematic, and I don't want to get into reasons why, although I could. So, you know, this level of accuracy and attention to detail and you know, all that occurring subsurface as opposed to a building or, you know, some other construction project where you can see it with your eyes. We can only determine all this with instruments and, and, and namely the interpretation of magnetic data. So it's quite a trick. It's not for the faint of heart. It's definitely not. There's not a lot of people that do it. And part of it goes back to this factory drilling process. So the big service companies, of course, like any business, need revenue that is dependable and that, you know, they can kind of count on. It's not quite like that here. If they have a package of, let's say, 20 wells to drill, you know, that rig, all those surface companies, they'll just drill those one after the other. It's not like this for plug-in abandonment. So it's been difficult thus far to realize efficiencies of scale, and there's just not a lot of interest as a result. And additionally, it's very hard. I wouldn't say it's impossible, to, but you cannot just write, let's say, a, a formula for how you're going to do this. You have to look, examine the well in detail and figure out the best way that you're going to attack that particular program, so, or problem, rather. So there's no program like a typical well that's drilled. They know exactly what they're going to do. What we do here is we have a full suite of tools, for example, and we have a full suite of fishing tools, and you know, all, these, all these different so sensors and hardware and all this stuff. And we may or may not use them at different times, et cetera. So it's completely different than a factory process. And it's for that reason why I believe a lot of service companies have not shot away from it, but not really embraced it. This. <laughs> what I was going to get at was we talked about, you talked about earlier about the fingerprint of the well. And I think that's kind of what you had. Every well is different. You don't know which tools in your toolbox you're necessarily going to use to find that three degree angle, right? But in this one in Huntington, how many like exploratory wells did you guys have to drill before you kind of started to, all right, we're starting to ping and that we're starting to find it. We're getting closer and closer. I'm just trying to get a feel for the time. Yeah. I and mean, it seems yeah, like you guys were there for weeks. Yeah, the very first time that we deployed the sensor, we identified the well. So, awesome. Yeah, so it's, you know that you're, quote, on it. We know that we're, you know, very, very close. And, and the records would indicate that we are. But now it's, once you identify it, the work just begins. So we always knew it was there, and you identify the well immediately. But now it's this process of homing in on the targets, so getting ever closer until we make contact and we start to initiate this milling process that I, that I spoke of earlier. So, yeah, it's, it's a week or two with this homing in process. And then, you know, the milling takes days and then reentry and cleaning at the well. That's where this time starts to accumulate and you're getting into, you know, a month-long project. I think realistically for wells such as these, you know, 10 days to two weeks to complete one, I think, if you're, if you're being really efficient and things go favorably. But like I said, that's to abandon a well. There's zero dollars coming back to you as a result of doing that if you're the operator as opposed to drilling a well at the same time. So do you have any advice right now, obviously with the, the rig counts down to numbers that you know, don't even seem to make sense to a lot of people, especially we've been around it for a while. There's a lot of people out there, a lot of good men and women who have had a lot of experience around you know, directional drilling and well bore placement and all the rest of that stuff. They understand the industry, they understand that. 
from a employment standpoint, you mentioned there's only a few people, only a few companies that do this. If there's anybody listening who's kind of thinking, you know, that we, so I hear that and just, you know, try to imagine, you know, just drilling a, the right hole to hang up something on the wall yep. can be a challenge. You're doing it, you know, within, within, you know, three degrees to come on center onto an existing well bore platform, you know, yep. like you said, but if they're out there going, man, I could do that. And that's, that feels like it's something in my wheelhouse either, you know, kind of what is the future of this part of our industry? Yeah. Well, a couple things there, yeah, I guess this is the humble side of it then. Yeah. I have obsessed about this stuff and have been obsessing about it for 15 years. Okay. But I'm not, and, and when I say there's only a certain amount of people that do it, yeah, there's only a certain amount of people, perhaps as crazy as me, that would obsess about magnetic ranging for 15 years. But could other people do? Absolutely. Look, there's guys and gals in the industry that have, you know, a fantastic educational background, have fantastic experience. They just haven't set their mind to it. That's all. So, yeah, absolutely they can. We need not have a limited pool of people that can clean these wells up. There's hundreds or thousands, certainly, if they set about doing that. How does one go about it? Well, if you look at my biography, you're going to have to strengthen your skills in the areas of wellbore surveying, wellbore positioning, magnetic ranging, you know, generally uh, wellbore or well engineering. So to understand the various completions, where we can spot cement, you know, what hole saws we can drill, et cetera. Yeah. And just a bit of practical advice and a shout out to the Industry Steering Committee on Wellbore Surveying Accuracy. That is a group of guys and gals that get together twice a year. It's, a, it's an offshoot of SPE. And all they do in those meetings, it's yeah, biannual and, and one-day meeting, is talk about wellbore positioning. And that is a good place to start. It's fairly inexpensive to attend. There's a wealth of knowledge. You can go look at past meetings and read through all those presentations. I've presented there numerous times. And pretty much the who's who of the industry when it comes to this type of problem, wellbore positioning issue, will be present in those meetings or represented somehow. So that's a good start for anyone interested. So as we're wrapping up, this went by fast. Great, great study. Eric, any last questions or thoughts? I did have one final question. Who footed the bill for Huntington Beach? Is that the developers finally coming in and saying, no, we need to use this land, so we got to write a check to get it where we need it? Or Yeah, I'd be speculating, but oh, I, be- I believe that it is. I know that there's number of rules there or I, you know i've heard i haven't read, uh, read the rules or anything like that but i guess there's a chain when you sell these there's a chain of events that can occur there if you sell these properties or you know one oil company buys the other one and i think they'll continue to go back to see who the last person it's a, a company that's still solvent that you know owns or is responsible for that but that liability can also be transferred and i believe in this case it was a real estate developer although i don't know for sure All right. Well, with that, Clinton, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure. Wish you nothing but the best in the future for this endeavor and all the other stuff that you're doing out there for not just oil and gas, because I know you have, as you told me, you're kind of like, you know, just agnostic around. Speaking of the geothermal conference in a couple of weeks. Yeah. Yeah. Anywhere there's there's holes in grounds and stuff like that that you're doing. So we just want to wish you the best of luck in all that you're doing. Yeah. Look, the installation of precision wellbore architecture, for whatever reason, I don't care what it is. You're after marshmallows down there. I'll drill it. <laughs> it doesn't matter to me. Yeah. So maybe the humble, but maybe I was, yeah, I get, so yeah. All right. Gotcha. All right. All right thanks so, Glenn. Thanks so much. And stay tuned. We're going to take a quick break in between segments and we're going to hear the insight piece next and a little bit more uh, clarification and understanding around this. So stay tuned. 
HPE powers the intelligent edge to help oil and gas industry leaders solve sustainability and IT efficiency needs. Their circular economy principles make each product more energy and material efficient, lowering product power consumption and eliminating waste from the start. In doing so, they can help you reduce your CapEx and OpEx expenses and meet sustainability goals. Very cool, Sean. If you want to find out more, go to www.hpe.com forward slash engage forward slash IOT or click on the link in the show notes to find out more information and download HPE's white paper all about it. Welcome to the inside segment of the show. Eric, we just heard from Clinton Moss at Gunner Energy about their success story with properly capping that abandoned well there in Huntington Beach, California. What was one of your biggest takeaways from that? I mean, for me, it's just the amazing technological achievement of finding it and hitting it at the right angle and what you have to go through to make that happen is just amazing to me. Yeah. One of the things, too, I thought was really interesting was really kind of separating that idea of, you know, drilling and well bore placement in terms of a skill set outside of the oil field side services, you know, they do this on a grand scale. But this minutia, you know, the idea of taking that long to drill that just a 300 foot, you know, which in the drilling world is like you're barely even getting started to get to that depth. And so to, that amount of time or precision based on that depth, I thought was just amazing. So as we do in this segment, you know, there's, there's Eric's opinion in mine, but we'd like to bring in another voice. We'd like to bring in somebody else, industry expert, to kind of add to the, the mix and enrich what we just listened to. And so to that today, we're joined by Jamie Sparing. Jamie is a native Texan, Rice University grad, and he's also spent a little time playing ball for the Baltimore Oils up in the show. He's had varied senior executive and senior positions in global sales, marketing, and business development inside the industry including time at National OL Varco, Scientific Drilling, and was a founding member and chief commercial officer for Rubicon Oilfield International. He's also currently the, the vice president of business development and global marketing for Verrill International Energy. And just to be transparent and pull back the shade a little bit, he's also an executive board member of Gunner Energy Services. And he happened, him and his wife are the godparents of my youngest daughter. So it made the phone call really easy. And I think what you'll learn quick and fast is outside of all that, it just made that part of the process easy. What you'll find out is he's somebody who knows a few things about drilling. So Jamie, thank you so much for coming to the show and welcome. Thanks, Sean. Eric, appreciate you having me. So my first, the first thing I started thinking about when, when listening to Clinton's story and this whole thing, it maybe helped me understand sustainability is this word we keep hearing, cradle to grave. It's one of these objectives that people have. And so you hear about, you know, not just this one abandoned well in Huntington Beach, but again, we're starting to look at some of the metrics. He talked about the public data. It seems like there's, this is a growing issue, a potential growing issue. Is, and so I think the naysayers or sometimes some of the negative voices may look over and go, well, they never really cared about it anyway. It's just part of the process. They're just coming in and take, you know, drilling holes, pulling out all the hydrocarbons and running off and, you know, skirting responsibility. So kind of help us understand from a more macro standpoint outside in the world around drilling and completions and stuff like that. Where does this problem come from and kind of what is it, what's the scale of it and why? Sure. Well, you know, when you talk about sustainability as being kind of a new, a new trend, you know, by now it's more than that. I mean, companies are putting their core values and their core strategies around ESG because they have to, you know, the UN has come out with sustainable development goals and a lot of, you know, larger major EMP companies are, are being very forthcoming as to what they're doing with ENG and, and sustainability is more than just a practice or just a function in a company. It's a mindset. And, you know, we as an industry have to be able to make that shift and understand that the reallocation of capital 
And, you know, the prioritization of where money and attention is spent, you know, needs to move more towards that ESG sector versus the, you know, the typical return on capital, you know, that we're all driven by. You know, when you th- we think about these hundreds of thousands of wells that still need to be capped, you know, below the surface, the variety of impact that's still being, you know, concentrated on within the industry around the environment, it comes from, you know, 70, 80, 90 years of a prolific industry that has, you know, punched holes in the, in the earth for many, many, many years around the world. You know, this definitely isn't a, a U.S. land problem. This definitely is a, a global problem. And, you know, now the industry is really concentrating on it. And you see a lot of the pioneers, major companies come forth. And my expectation is many more will follow. I think one of the biggest issues for the industry is kind of this image thing. And, we, and we've fallen behind, I think, a little bit. I think everybody's starting to catch up now and say, hey, we need to be out there. We need to be messaging. We need to be telling our story. I think we do a lot of great things, but there's some places where we've fallen down byproducts of our various processes. You think about flaring, you know, that goes, how do we deal with that? Now you're talking about abandonment issues. And so all these reputational things as we try to build credibility with investors, which is key. I mean, that's, that's really what has driven it in my personal opinion over the last couple of years is really access to capital. You're seeing more and more investors back away from the industry. And I think we've got to really work on this reputational side and tell these good stories. So as, as I think about this particular issue, and we think about dollars and what's going to drive, you know, how do we get the money behind to fix all of these wells? I mean, you know, just from a capital standpoint. Yeah, great points. And, you know, investment capital has left the industry for multiple reasons other than environmental impact. You know, you see the overall return on capital. You see the downturn that we're currently seeing the unfavorable result from right now. But, you know, if we want more private equity, more strategic investment dollars come back, they are going to have to see that sustainability piece as a part of that long-term portfolio. They're going to want to know that that investment that they're making is concentrating on the long-term aspect of a sustainable future. And so how do we get those dollars? I think, I think it comes from three main areas. You know, the reason why we're in this position is technology. You know, Clinton from Gunner Energy Services just told us a case study around, you know, a well that was essentially constructed back in the 1920s. It was attempted to be plugged back in the 1950s by using a 10 and a half inch wooden telephone pole, you know, by brute force, shoving it back into the wellbore and hoping for the best. And that was just what they did back then. And even as it evolved, the technology to be able to go in, effectively create a cement plug, effectively re-enter wellbores for those that even can be re-entered And the way you look at it now, we now have technology in which you can put precision accuracy back into wells that cannot be re-entered conventionally by using magnetic ranging. It is extraordinary, the direction that we've come. And so I think the evolution of the technology is now here where you can go do plug and abandonment for even the most complex plug and abandonment opportunities. So, So I think we're starting to solve that issue. The second piece of it is prioritization of capital. So many EMP companies are driven by either Wall Street or, you know, the return on capital for their shareholders. And so when you have the ability to invest millions of dollars in a new well board, knowing that you're going to get that return on investment in just a couple of years or months, you're going to make that decision versus going and spending a million dollars, plugging and banning a well, even maybe investing in a relief well where you get nothing back but heartache and cost. So... So it's the reallocation and reprioritization of that capital. And I think we get those dollars by, I think, the state. I think more government intervention that will give more incentives, more tax breaks, and, and more assistance to some of these EMP companies, though, that will motivate them to reprioritize 
reprioritize that capital back into PNA or plug and abandonment. And then lastly, you know, the third is just the technological know-how. If the technology is there, you know, Clinton tells the, the case study about only having a couple of companies in the industry that can do this. There is only a couple companies, but there's even less than those individuals that have the technological know-how, the operational know-how to be so precise and so pinpoint and get in, get out as quickly and safely as possible. You know, Clinton is one of only a handful of people in the world. And so scaling that knowledge, teaching more of the industry, bringing a lot of the, either the kids or, or older, you know, men and women that have left the industry, bring them back, educate them into more about wellbore placement, wellbore positioning, you know, because that's where the sustainable jobs are going to be, less around drilling. So to that, from a technology standpoint, it's obviously 1950, 1920, 2020, what are companies currently doing to minimize or, or eliminate this issue going forward? You know, the ability Clinton mentioned, you know, the, extremely confident and, and I am inclined to believe him that what he did is going to be a, a really solid fix, a lot better than a Cedar light, a telephone pole. But in addition to that, what are companies on average doing right now? What is the, and is that a trend that's happening besides, or in, in regards to just making those current wells as we go to abandon them that are being drilled within recently? What is the industry doing about that right now? Well, I think that, again, the larger exploration and production companies are setting aside certain amount of budget to be able to accomplish their PA portfolio. They know they have to do it now with driven by the promise of ESG. They are now starting to increase that activity, whether it be in the North Sea, whether it be in Asia, whether it be, you know, right here in U.S. land. You are seeing more and more companies talk about it. I think we as an industry just have to continue to back who we are and what we're doing and actually take action around it. But, you know, the awareness around the need to clean up a lot of these old abandoned wells is there. And so whether it's going to be government intervention that helps us, or it's just going to be more leadership that knows it's the right thing to do. You know, my expectation is over the next five to 10 years, this is going to be a dramatically higher level of activity for the industry. And that actually is something I want to follow up on. You you said earlier, talking a little bit about reskilling some labor, right? And, and I think no matter what 2021 or 22 looks like, no matter how much oil and gas comes back, right. I think we've definitely seen a peak in the labor force, right? As, as we digitize everything, as we remote work, as we do so many things to try to bring more efficiency to the EMP side, we have so many people that have lost their jobs and I'm not sure those jobs are coming back. As we think about this as, as a big growth area and an opportunity to reskill people, you know, Gunner's not going to be able to hire 10,000 people, right? But is the path forward for some of the larger service companies to address kind of what Gunnar talked about a little bit earlier in the case study, which is it's kind of hard to, to really see a, a consistent profit or a consistent opportunity to make money in this area. But how do we, do we have to get the big service companies excited about it so they can start reskilling people? I mean, what is the opportunity there from a human capital side as we think about the social side? Well, as you say that, you know, the overall workforce is capped. You know, most, most of the young individuals, young professionals coming out of university right now, they're not looking towards oil and gas to enter. And that's sad. And even when they did, they look towards drilling, they look towards completions, they look towards geology, drilling engineering, whatever it may be. But there is a massive opportunity for young adults to enter this industry and go more towards the intervention and plug and abandonment and, and really the kind of production enhancement and production completion side of the business. And, and I think if an EMP company wants to really hire talent back into the industry, they need to be able to market 
that not only do they care about it, but there are jobs, long-term sustainable jobs where they can come in, they can learn, and that's where they cut their teeth in the industry on the backside of the wellbore life cycle versus the front side. And when it comes to scaling tribal knowledge, you know, it's people like Clinton Moss who is actively out on social media, is actively, you know, putting his, you know, personal interests aside as a company, and he's just teaching. You know, he's pulling back the curtain, so to speak. He's talking about techniques and physics and, and ways in which you can accomplish these complex PNA wellbores. And, you know, that's just more of what we need is, is people out there, you know, just unveiling all the expertise that only a few people have and inviting new people to come in and gain those skill sets. So what excites you from a Gunner Energy Services in that, in that area in terms of the next level? Is there, I mean, obviously it looks like we're, looks like we're peaking out technologies we have it now. Is there anything that's being looked at to kind of enhance those abilities or is it kind of on a case-to-case basis like what he was talking about where it's such an oddball, it's such a unique situation that it literally could be specialized like a, there's no cookie cutter for it. It's going to have to be well by well based on what those specific requirements are relative to that yeah, opportunity. It is. Yeah, it is. I mean, you know, Clinton talks about it, that every well bore has a, a fingerprint and it does. The evolution of this magnetic ranging technology is, you know, it's, it's exacerbated so much and it's accelerated so much over the last even couple of decades. But, you know, Gunner Energy Services is one where, you know, the, the technology they have today is replicated with a few other companies, but they're also working on some step change advancements to being able to access well bores without being able to drop, you know, sensors without having to really intervene in other wells and be too invasive in the overall operations where, you know, they can use that magnetic ranging capability to do things much faster, much safer, and with a lot more dependability. You know, what Clinton makes everything seem relatively easy, but these are extraordinarily hard operations and technology is only going to advance it such that more companies can do it and it becomes more predictable. When you think about trying to scale this business up, and we definitely think there's a market for it, do we think we'll see private equity interest in this? I mean, you think about your Warburg experience and, and starting a Rubicon. Do you think the PE guys look around and say, hey, you know, we can actually start up some smaller companies, scale them up and, and maybe do something, exit in some way. But is, is there that private equity capital you think that would get in this space? Is this green enough? Is this sustainable enough? Does this attract, you know, do the LPs actually look at this and go, hey, this is something we can actually get behind? Or is this still too connected to old school oil and gas that, you know, we think there may be a capital access issue, if that makes sense? It's a great question. I would tell you, if I had enough personal wealth to represent a private equity, I would invest in it. The technology around wellbore access using very, very less evasive means is scalable well beyond oil and gas. When you start talking about geothermal, renewable energy, we start talking about potash, when you start talking about conventional civil engineering, directional business, and any time that you are putting a wellbore in the earth to be able to extract some source of either energy or value, you're going to need some pretty complex technology and the know-how to be able to do it. And all of that is around doing it safer, faster, get in, get out, and then be able to use those either hydrocarbons or renewable energy to help the planet. So I think it, it is a 360 circle using this type of technology. And I think it's going to really, you know, drive a lot of advancement with the ESG sector as well. Well, Jamie, we so much appreciate your insight. Thank you so much for taking the time to come out and talk to us today. Really good stuff. And we just thank you for being here. Yeah, awesome. Thanks, Jamie. Appreciate, yeah, appreciate it. it, guys. Hey, everybody. It's Savannah from OGGN. And here are the events on deck for February 2021. 
this month, we only have three events, but if you'd like the full list, you can click the link in the show notes to sign up for our events newsletter. We send it out every month, and it includes more info about the events I talk about here. We even include events that occur two months ahead of time, so if you're interested in always staying in the loop about oil and gas events, make sure to check that out. First up, we have our two in-person events, the TAMU SPE Sporting Clays Tournament at Tonkaway Ranch in College Station on the 19th, and the Thrive Energy Conference at Minute Maid Park from the 24th to the 26th. The only online event we have this month is the TAMU SPE Executive Series with our very own Mark LaCour of Oil & Gas This Week on the 26th. Other than these events, OGGN may be hosting some more live streams this month, so make sure to check out our Facebook, LinkedIn, or our website for more information about any of the live streams we have coming up. If you have any questions about the events or any of our shows, make sure to reach out to me through my email in the show notes. That's all for February. I hope you guys have a great month, and thanks for tuning in. On behalf of the Elevate podcast team, thank you so much for clicking play and bringing to life these amazing stories. We hope this elevated your perspective and serves you well as you navigate understanding ESG and the energy evolution. We are so grateful for your time and kindly ask that you rate and review the show on Apple iTunes, which is a great way to help us grow. The best way to support the work we are doing is to tell a friend about it, ask them to listen, and share with others what you've learned from listening to our guests. Lastly, we want to invite you to reach out to us for any comments, suggestions, or just to connect. You can do that through my email, sean.mccoy at oggn.com. I'd love to hear from you and what you think of our podcast. Be safe, and we look forward to bringing you another episode next week. Here's a demonstration of some mental stimulation. We a nation making change. Let me frame the illustration. It's time for us to elevate your mind to a higher place. OGG in the power, here to innovate. innovate. Elevate your mind to a higher place. OGG in the power, here to innovate. Ha!